Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We're in Romans chapter 8. We've been there for a few messages. This is message number 6 on the Holy Spirit from this 8th chapter of Romans, where the Holy Spirit is mentioned 22 times in one chapter. And so no doubt uh, that is part of uh, uh, the subject of this chapter. Since that's been our subject, uh, you might notice uh, Don read the text to us just a few minutes ago, and the Holy Spirit is only mentioned once, however, in the verses that we're looking at this morning. Uh, and uh, that's in verse 23, where uh, we're told that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And uh, that means that uh, this subject has to do with anticipation of a time when we will see God. And in the meantime, we have the first fruits inside us. We have uh, that Holy Spirit from God, that earnest of the Spirit in us, and we're waiting for a time that uh, will, when the whole creation will be brought back to God's will. And so that's kind of the subject and what we're looking at. For now, we must wait. We must wait here where we are and serve God the best we can in this world. Now, Don did also back up and read verse 17. I'm glad that he did because I want to remind you that there we were told uh, that we have something in common with Christ. We are co-sufferers with him, you remember. So we suffer with him. That is, we take what comes to us in this world. Sometimes it's physical suffering. Sometimes it's uh, uh, persecutions. We're also co-glorified with him. At the end of verse 17, we may also be glorified together with him. And that becomes kind of the subject uh, for verse 17, or verse 18, I mean, to 23. That's why you have the word for that begins verse 18. How is it that we will be glorified together with him? And that's what we're going to look at in the verses ahead. We're all kind of worried about this world, aren't we? Uh, you can't be a believer, it seems like today, and desire God's will and desire uh, who God is without being pretty worried about the condition that, that this world is in. Of course, we're in the middle of this virus, this COVID that has uh, closed doors and closed down countries, uh, businesses, uh, and uh, scared the world to death, uh, uh, the truth, and uh, the world has done crazy things because of this. In the meantime, uh, not only that, but Cancer goes on, as it always has, and takes the life of thousands of people. Heart attacks do the same thing. Pneumonia takes its toll. The world's worst plague right now is murder, and that's the murder of the unborn. Uh, millions and millions upon millions of them uh, every year, uh, more than any other virus or any other disease or any other accident could take. That must be uh, a sin, great sin before God, because that's taking more lives in this world than ever before. I pray that those who name the name of Christ, that sit on uh, our Supreme Court and other places like that, can follow what they believe more than what they're told to do, and I hope that they will. 
So those things continue. Not only that, we're told that uh, natural resources are a problem. We just may not have enough of this and enough of that, and maybe the climate will change and maybe it won't. I mean, we're told all kinds of things. But uh, we're going to read some interesting things in today's text about this world in which we live, uh, the earth on the, that we live on, and ourselves also. You know, back in Genesis 1, if we turn back there, and I'm, I'm not turning here at the beginning, but uh, in verses 27 to 30, in that Garden of Eden, when God made Adam and then he made Eve also, he brought them before him and he said, I want you to dress and keep this world. Here's the garden. Here's what you live in. And by the way, that Garden of Eden had to be hundreds upon hundreds of miles wide and long. It's not just your backyard garden, you understand. Uh, this was a huge area. But an unfallen man uh, that can walk with God has unlimited mental and physical capabilities. He was able to do that. Two people in that world, easy to do. You, uh, you take care of this garden, dress it, and keep it, and there wasn't a weed that grew in that garden. Pretty easy to do. Then we find in chapter 3, sin enters into this world. And even after sin enters in, God brings man before him again and says, now you dress and keep the world still, but it's going to be hard. And uh, the weeds are going to grow, and the thorns are going to grow, but that's your responsibility. You do it. Well, then, when they failed at that, God flooded the world and remade it and brought Noah before him in chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3 and say, now you tend the garden, you dress it and keep it, and it's going to be harder than it ever was before in the world that has changed from before the flood to after the flood. Peter called it the world that then was and the world that is now. And yet it's still our responsibility to do that. It's still our responsibility to live in this world and do what God wants us to do with it and respect it the way God wants us to. I think two huge mistakes have been made in our lifetime. One is by evolutionists who tell us we have a very long, long time to do this, and we do not. We don't have as much time to take care of God's world as they say we have. The second mistake that is made by environmentalists who tell us the world will take care of itself, leave it alone. It's never been true in the garden. It's not true now. It wasn't true in Adam's day or Noah's day. The world will get worse and worse and decay further and further if you leave it alone. We're supposed to take care of it and dress it and keep it still uh, right now. As a matter of fact, they think that human beings are the enemy uh, of the environment. God says, no, you're in charge of it, and you dress it and keep it the way I've asked you to do it. There are two truths that we will learn from Romans chapter 8, and one is we have a short time to dress it and keep it. We don't have very long. This age of grace will be over soon, and your life will be over soon, and none of us have very much time to do this, and so that's one thing we will learn. And the second one is that the earth naturally and quickly decays. If we don't take care of it, if we don't do what we should do, uh, it, it will fall apart, and it needs man's help to do it, to put his hands on it and to dress it and keep it and to use it in the way God intends. And by the, world, by the way, there are more resources and blessings from God in this world than we have time to even use. 
God has given them to us to use and to use to man's benefit and to the benefit of the gospel. Well, I think we will see, too, as I mentioned the Holy Spirit uh, in verse 23, that this realization of what the earth is and what our responsibility to this world is takes the Spirit of God inside a person to understand that. And that's why we have so much misunderstanding about how we treat the world and what we should be doing with it. So our text is verses 18 to 23. It gives us a picture of the work and the attitude that God wants us to have uh, with the time that we have left to work. So follow me, if you will, as we start down through these verses, and you have an outline in your bulletin or on the left side of your screen if you're watching. So first of all, in these first two verses, and we'll take uh, two, two, and two uh, in these three, uh, or these uh, four thoughts, excuse me, three thoughts. And uh, so first of all, he talks about the sons of God. Again, because we're joint heirs with Christ, verse 17, we're co-sufferers and we'll be co-glorified with him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I say, first of all, about the sons of God, we're under subjection. We're under subjection because the glory isn't here yet. Now, when he starts to say, I consider, you might have the word reckon. He used that back in chapter 6 and verse 11 to mean I have to stop and realize something. I have to stop then and apply what I know to what I'm doing. I reckon this. I consider this. But then he basically says our Christian life has to be viewed on a scale, one thing weighed against the other. And that is the sufferings of this present time on one side of the scale and the glory that shall be revealed within us on the other side of the scale. How can you understand this world without that uh, point of view? And how can you have that point of view without having the first fruits of the Spirit inside you? You understand that in this world, we do suffer. And we suffer for a lot of different reasons, but we're in a world that is suffering. But there is a world to come. There is a glory that will be revealed in us and in this whole world. And we balance those two things. We live in, with one foot in this world and one foot in that world. We, we live here and are about to go out of this world, but we're ready to enter into that world and live forever in that world. This earth that we live on has been in this history, but it's ready to go to that history. We have to understand that balance or that scale that we live in. Now, the sufferings of this present time, we know what they are. We all suffer that way. Number one, we die. We, we don't live forever. And we do that because of Adam's sin and our sin in Adam. And so we suffer from diseases and viruses and accidents and, and uh, all of those aches and pains that come to us throughout our lives. We also suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? You remember 2 Timothy 3.12? They that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so those of us who rightly understand these things because we have the Spirit of God suffer because we have the Spirit of God, because the world doesn't want to hear this. 
and doesn't want to hear the scale and the fact that we're not going into oblivion and into some endless eternity. Shortly now, we're going into the millennial reign of Christ and then a new heaven and a new earth. And we know that that's true, and we look forward to it. So the, the sufferings of this present time, though, are not worthy to be compared. Do you understand that, folks? That whatever you're suffering right now is nothing in light of the glory that you're going to share one day. No matter what it is you have to suffer, and there have been those who have suffered greatly. There have been those who have been tormented and, and, and burned for their faith. That's not worthy to be compared with what is coming. So what have we done in this life that we would hang on to the things of this world uh, rather than look forward to the world that is to come? The sufferings are not worthy to be compared. The, if there's a scale like this and you have the sufferings over here and you have the glories that follow, it's like jumping on a teeter-totter and you're the only one on it. Whoom, they just go like this. The, the glories that will be revealed so far outweigh the sufferings of this present time. Not worthy, he says, to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed within us. 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, When he comes in that day to be glorified in all his saints, and to be admired in all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Those verses can be multiplied over and over again. Now, what verse 18 then says to us is, we're on that other side of the scale right now. We're on the suffering part of the scale. The other is yet to come. But notice then that we will be delivered from this. In verse 19, secondly, says this. So, he begins by bringing up the creation, and he says, uh, for the earnest expectation of the creation. Let me make a comment about that word creation, because sometimes you will have it a creature and sometimes creation. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the older and new translation that we use, you have creature, and then in the new one you have creation. But it comes from the same Greek word. So he's referring basically to the same thing. It can be translated either way. In chapter 1 and verse 20, the attributes of God are clearly seen from the creation this word is used. But then in verse 25 of the same chapter, they worshiped and served the creature more than the cre creator. And so it can be translated both ways. And so uh, don't let that fool you. That's this world. That is what exists on this earth and the, the life, including the people that live on this earth. We're the creatures of God, if you will. And so, he says, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. Now, I'm going to come back to that. I want you to hold on to it. Uh, but that creation, you see that expression, eagerly waits, Someone translated this from the original language. It cranes its neck. <laughs> Have you ever used that expression? Somebody just cranes their neck to see something over there. This creation is eagerly waiting with earnest expectation 
for something to happen, something to change. You say, I don't see it. Well, God sees it, and God created it. And he's saying this creation is about to change, and it is eagerly, earnestly waiting for that change to come about. So hold that thought a little bit, but notice the last part of verse 19. They wait, it waits, for the revealing of the sons of God. You and I are going to be delivered from this subjection that we are under, this, this life that we have to live under, this, this flesh that we live in, this planet that we live on, the short life that we have. We're going to be delivered from it. As a matter of fact, uh, here the, notice the word revealed at the, excuse me, at the end of verse 18 and revealing at the end of verse 19. It's the word apocalypse, the same word that we, we title the last book of the Bible with with the apocalypse, with the unveiling, the uncovering of the sons of God. Now, the sons of God, the Christians in this world, may be the ones persecuted now, may be the ones suffering now, but there's coming a time when God takes that veil off and opens up the picture, and the sons of God will be glorified with the Son of God and with God himself. And so don't lose hope, folks. Your time is coming. Our time is coming. We will be uh, uh, revealed and made known. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And even Daniel 12, 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the revealing of the sons of God is coming. And in verse 21, it's called the glorious liberty of the children of God. I'll tell you what's coming. First of all, a thousand years when Jesus Christ reigns on this earth, the millennial reign of Christ could be only seven years away because Christ could come at the rapture at any time and then that kingdom comes seven years later when for a thousand years the curse is mostly lifted and Christ reigns and this earth is blessed and the sons of God reign with him. That time's coming and then if that isn't enough, uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will live in that new Jerusalem and live forever with the Lord like that. All of that is yet coming. And so well, how do we balance the scales? I balance my scale large toward that side. I hope you do too. So number one, the sons of God under subjection will be delivered. But you notice in verses 20 and 21 that we talk about the creation now with the same two thoughts under subjection and yet it will be delivered so let's read 20 and 21 for the creation or creature if you have it was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it though it's in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of those children of God. So here's this whole creation, and guess what? It's under subjection, and there you have that word subjected to futility. 
That word is used a lot. We're subjected uh, to God. Wives are subject to their husbands. We're subject to the government and all those kinds of expressions. Hupastaso, to place yourself under. And this creation is subjected to futility. It has to live this way. Things have to die. Things have to rot and spoil. That's what happens in this world. Now, that word futility would be translated transient, temporary, sometimes passing away. I want you to, if you can, or let me read Isaiah 24 and a few verses out of Isaiah 24. If you can turn there, fine, Isaiah 24, verse 4. But listen how God describes what happened to the world. Isaiah 24 and verse 4. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people on the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. <laughs> pretty, pretty negative language when it comes right down to it. But notice in our verse in Romans 8 and verse 20 that the creation is subjected to this futility, this temporariness, this transientness. And notice, not willingly, right? Why is that not willingly? Who sinned in the Garden of Eden? Man sinned. Why did the fall happen even to this world? Because of the, the, the animals? Because of the plants? No, because of man. Not because they wanted it to be like this, but we chose it to be like this. And so the creation is subject to futility because of man's sin, because of our sin. And no wonder we have the responsibility then before God to do something about that always. Well, let me read you that statement of God to Adam after he sinned in Genesis 3.17. Adam, uh, he, he said to Adam, "'Because you have heeded the voice of your wife "'and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, "'saying you shall not eat of it, "'cursed is the ground for your sake. "'In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And so the, the earth, the, the, the creation, is subjected to this futility because of man's sin. And yet still, we are commanded to till it and to take care of it and to work with it uh, because that's God's will for us. Let me, let me tell you something. The earth is devolving and not evolving. It has never been evolving. It has never been getting better and better. It has been getting worse and worse since then. And death has reigned on this earth since the curse of Adam and Eve. And it's not that long ago. Not only that, it needs man's help to sustain it. And so if the earth is going to be better, if it's going to have better places, those human beings, God has said, you tend it and keep it. 
you do something about it. It's under the bondage of corruption, verse 21 says. William Newell in his commentary said, It was God's good pleasure that when man sinned and became estranged from his God, all creation which is under him should be subjected to the bondage of corruption along with him in decay and disease and suffering and death and destruction everywhere and bondage with no deliverer. That's the way the earth is now. And as I said, environmentalists, in my opinion, uh, as a believer in God's word, uh, is letting that happen more than anyone. They have done more to hurt the, environmental, the environment than ever to help it. Now, we, sh we should be good stewards of it. We should not waste it, pollute it, and all of that. What kind of a garden would you have if you just threw your garbage out there all the time and didn't do anything about it? When you have a garden, you clean it up. If you have a forest, you clean it out. If you want a path, you make a path. You do something to clean it up. God was pleased with Adam in the garden when he did it this way. And so you don't just let it lie there. You don't just say, well, don't touch it. Don't do anything about it. It'll evolve and get better. It never will. It will corrupt more and more. God says to man, you get in there and clean that up and take care of it. It's my earth. I'm putting you on it, and you don't have much time left in order to do it. Now, I think that's exactly what these verses are telling us. Now, it will be delivered, secondly. And in verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered. Not just you and me, not just the believer being taken out of this world and being able to live in God's presence, not just the believer living in the kingdom of God. The whole creation is going to be delivered from this corruption, <laughs> and it isn't going to be done by, the, by today's society and governments. It's going to be done by God himself. And so the creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of light. Will be delivered. There's an old poet, Horatio Bonner, who said, Come and make all things new. Restore our faded paradise. Build up this ruined earth, creation's second birth. And there will be. And we read about, didn't we? Uh, Isaac Watts saying, As far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, that coming king will renew this earth. Let me read you a few things that are said about it. And you could read hundreds of these kinds of verses. Psalm 67, 6, then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all ends of the earth shall fear him. I can't wait for a time when the earth will yield its increase. It is under subjection right now, and it's hard to grow anything. It's hard to make anything. But when the curse is lifted, as far as that curse is found, it will be, and it will produce like you have never seen it produce before, like God made it to produce. Joel 3.18, it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. All the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, 
and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. You know what it you know what that says? That you can't plant the ground fast enough because it's producing so fast that it's ready to harvest before you get done. It will produce its crop. The mountains shall drop with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And one more, Zechariah 8, 12. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. And as I said, we can read hundreds of verses like this that describe what's going to happen to this earth when Jesus comes. And how long will that be? When will Jesus come? It could be as I speak, and it could be within our lifetime. So, back to our thoughts here that the earth will be delivered. Those verses that I read to you are speaking of the millennial blessing. It's speaking of a time when Jesus will return to the earth, seven years after the rapture of the church. He will return to the earth. He will lift the curse. He will reign in Jerusalem, and the earth will be changed like that. And by the way, you and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we will live and reign with him on the earth. And another blessing is our sinful nature will be gone. Our bodies will have been resurrected and returned uh, from glory with him. And we'll live on that kind of earth. Man, the glory that should be revealed in us far outweighs any suffering that we have in this world. Not only that, as someone said, we ought to feel sympathy for this earth. We ought to feel sorry for the animals that have to be eaten by another animal. We ought to, be, we ought to feel sorry for the rotting and decaying and, and molding and destruction. You know why? Because it's our fault. It happened because of our sin. If, we had, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned and we sinned with him, we sinned at the same time. It's because of our sin that this poor world is the way it is. Somebody said we ought, to, we ought to feel sympathy for it. But not only that, this world will be delivered because of us too. If it wasn't for the coming of Jesus Christ back to this earth and the glorifying of the children of God, the earth would not be brought back to its original creation. But it will be because we will be. So the whole creation we have here is under subjection. Praise the Lord, in verse 21, it will be delivered. And so there's an anticipation here in our last two verses, 22 and 23. We know that the whole creation groans. Here's the groaning. Anticipation means groaning, doesn't it? Groans with, uh, and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why? We're eagerly waiting the adoption that is the redemption of the body. We groan within ourselves too. Now, I'm sure you never groan, do you? I guess as I get older, uh, you know, as those pains set in, the groaning set in too. And I'll be going up the stairs of the house and Ann will say, What's wrong? <laughs> I'm just groaning, that's all. 
I like to groan. Leave me alone. You know, I, I need to groan now once in a while. You Don't you? You find yourself getting up out of a chair. No, you're just groaning, you know. All right. That's life. That's the world in which we live. Do you know that there are four times that are easily identified that groaning takes place. In verse 22, by the world itself, by the creature itself. Number two, in, in, in verse 23, we ourselves are groaning within ourselves. Then, though we'll not go down to verse 26 uh, today, when the Holy Spirit speaks for us, He makes groanings that cannot be uttered. We'll look at that uh, next time. And then, I'm going to br bring it to you in a few minutes, Jesus groaned once at the tomb of Lazarus because of the need of resurrection. And so there's a groaning in this world for its change, a looking forward to it. Now, that word groan, I've defined this word in a lot of different texts, but I found it again here, stenazo. We get our English word stencil from. Stenazo, or, or stenace in the noun, means to be compressed. It means to be pushed through. And so what does a stencil do? Why do we take that, that English word from this old word? Well, a stencil is, or was, in those days when they used them a lot, you cut out a pattern, you put that on top of a, of a cloth or whatever you want to paint, and you squeeze that, that ink through that stencil, pull the stencil off, and then you have the pattern underneath it, right? So that stenciling, here is the groaning. You can see the pushing and the aching. You know where else this word stenis is used? There is a straight gate. Straight gate, and narrow is the way. Straight, not G-H-T, but S-T-R-A-I-T. Straight means squeeze. Straight means narrow gate. And the gate to eternal life is hard. It, it, involves, it involves suffering. We're co-sufferers with Christ. It, it involves being compressed. And so straight is the gate. Stencil is the gate. Like ink being pushed through a stencil. And that's the way sometimes the Christian life is in this world. And so creation is groaning in such a way. And again, we ought to feel sorry for them. But creation doesn't... You know, animals didn't want to eat each other. Animals didn't want to die. Trees didn't want to fall over and rot. Uh, mold didn't want to grow in this world, but it does because of our sin. But it's craning its neck, remember. It's looking for that time of deliverance when those kinds of things don't have to happen anymore. Being red and tooth and claws, they say, will be gone. The lion will lie down with the lamb. And the child will play with the snake that was once poisonous. Those times are coming. And it's groaning, waiting for that time to come. How different is that than the way that the lost world looks at this earth and what they think the future of this world is going to be? So it's groaning, it's waiting. William Hendrickson said, Nature's potentialities are cribbed, cabined, and confined. I thought that was cribbed and cabined and defined. Uh, they want to do so much more, but they can't. Henry Morris, 
uh, the creationist said, it is universal experience that all things, living and non-living, eventually wear out, grow old, decay, and pass into dust. And yet they will be delivered from that soon. And so creation groans, waiting for that time to come. But notice the sons of God then groan also. So verse 23 says, not only they... But those of us who have the Spirit of God, we have the first fruits of the Spirit of God, uh, we also groan within ourselves. And though we have the Spirit, we have the earnest of our salvation, we have God in us, dwelling in us, and we're the temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit lives within us, we groan too. We say, oh Lord, deliver us. Take away this evil world. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Take me out of here, Lord. Beam me up, Scotty. There's no intelligent life down here, you know, as the bumper sticker says. 2 Corinthians 5, 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 4. For we that are in this tabernacle, this tent, do groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Let this mortal, this mortality be swallowed up into eternal life. I'm groaning. I'm looking forward to that. And I hope you are too. Isn't it great? that, uh, you know, we can enter the valley of the shadow of death, but fear no evil because he's with us. And when it's all said and done, uh, so shall we ever be in the house of the Lord. That's a great thing when you think about it. So, waiting for, our verse says, the adoption, that is the redemption of our body. When we looked at adoption in the verses previous, we also recognize that not only are we adopted now into the family of God, but our full adoption takes place when we get home, when we get to that new world that God is taking us to. Again, I, I likened it to, you know, you, you, can, you can go legally adopt a child, but you need to bring that child home. You need to bring him home and let him live in your house with you and enjoy all the privileges that go on in your house. We're not home yet is all. We've been legally adopted by him and we belong to him. He's taking us home and we're looking forward to being home with him. Now, the redemption of the body. Yes. Let me read that to you. First Corinthians 15, 42, of course. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. You know what he's saying? When we put a body in this ground, it's come to its end. It, it, has, it has come to where it can't live any longer. We put it in the ground in its weakness and in its corruption. But that body will come out of that grave in its strength and glory and power that God's going to give it in Resurrection Day. Isn't that a great thing? What a wonderful promise that is. Jesus was standing at the tomb of Lazarus, and he was looking around at people there who didn't understand resurrection, 
didn't understand the promises that he was making. And so John eleven thirty eight 38 says, Jesus, uh, again, groaning in himself. Je- Jesus looking at people who have no hope in resurrection, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. He said, take the stone away. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said, Lord, by this time there's a stench and he's been dead four days. Jesus said, did not I say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Do you not want to see the glory of God illustrated in this resurrection that I'm about to perform? And that's what all of us will partake in one day. What a great thing that is. Let me, let me end this thought with these again. God said, dress and keep the earth. In the Garden of Eden, there were two saints, Adam and Eve. And as I said, that garden, as far as we understand it, would go from the Euphrates River to the Nile River. It was a huge, big garden. They could take care of it. They could because it was before the fall. But after the fall, God brings them before him again and says, now you dress it and keep it. There were four at least that time, Adam and Eve and and Cain and Abel. You guys take care of it. And they tried and they failed. And of course, one uh, disappeared all of a sudden. And they went to the flood and where God said, I'll destroy it and start again. And after the flood, he brings Noah and his family. Now there are eight saints. And he says to these eight saints, now you tend it and keep it. And we're all children of Adam and Eve. We're trying to do that. Things are going to get better because after the resurrection, when Jesus returns to the earth, all of the lost people will be removed from the earth and all of the saints that have ever lived on the earth will be there to tend and keep it in the kingdom of God. How easy and how great will that be? That time's coming. It's a better time than we have now. And not only that, but when the thousand years are done, and he, he, there is a new heaven and a new earth, now all the saints that ever lived then and ever will live will live in the new Jerusalem, in heaven as we call it, forever, taking care of the things that God wants to take care of. What I'm saying is it's going to get easier and easier. It's hard right now. We're suffering right now. But better days are ahead when we know these things. So why do we have these verses here in this in this study of the Holy Spirit in this eighth chapter of Roman. Because, as verse 17 says, the Holy Spirit uses these things to witness to us that we are children of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have these things coming to us. Peter said in 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice. To extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Those things are coming to you and to me. I hope you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I hope that you have that great hope of eternal life. And if you do, you have a perspective of this world that the average human being does not and cannot have. Use it and glory in it. And thank God for all that he gives you. Stand now with me, if you will, and let's bow our heads together. And let's think about these things that we've read this morning. And let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. 
And maybe to those who don't know Christ as Savior, that they would receive him when they hear a message today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these great promises. My heart just uh, joys when I think of the promises that are ahead for us. And Father, then the scale that we have is so outweighed. The, the sufferings of this present time just aren't worthy to be compared with what you have promised us and what is ahead for us. Father, there are those who don't know Christ as Savior in this world today, and across this world, no doubt, many, many of them have heard a gospel message today. And Father, I pray uh, that someone hearing the gospel message would believe and accept and trust you, trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, to have this great promise and blessing that is to come. And then, Father, I pray that you would encourage us in our aches and pains, uh, in this world of trouble that we live in. Father, may our groaning be for a better world. May our groaning be that we anxiously crane our necks and look for your promises that are going to come. So, Father, encourage us, bless us, help us to be faithful, help us to be steady in our faith, and may you be glorified always by our lives. We pray that you would accomplish these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in a song. You respond to this as the way the Lord is leading you to respond.